It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. My name is Yossi Klein-Halevi, and I'm a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Today is Tuesday, August 18th, 2020, and this is For Heaven's Sake, the new podcast from the Hartman's I Engage Project. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Daniel Hartman, the president of the Institute here in Jerusalem, and myself, will be discussing a central issue to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Alana Stein-Hain, director of the Hartman faculty in North America, will explore with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. At the Hartman Institute, we approach the Israel conversation as we do all our conversations from a perspective of Jewish values, seeking broad and deep engagement. Our aim is to encourage a serious and respectful conversation on Israel across political lines, promoting understanding and strengthening Jewish peoplehood. Today, our theme is the peace agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. In what ways does it challenge our assumptions on Middle East East making? Last week, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, a man whom many in the Israeli and the American Jewish communities have seen as an enemy of peace, stunned the world by announcing full diplomatic relations between Israel and the UAE. This, despite the continued failure of a two-state solution and the ongoing occupation. Danielle, Good to be with you. Nice to be with you. Danielle, was the peace camp wrong about Netanyahu? Very possibly. There's so many ways of looking at this. But I was taught that one of the fundamental rules in philosophy is you always give the other side their best possible reading. Now, this is not the first time. Netanyahu, it's very possible that the read of Netanyahu um, as the enemy of the peace camp is because his reading is that when it comes to Palestinians, there is no possibility of peace. And therefore, he's not for pursuing a peace which is unpursuable or unattainable. Um, I think he deserves a tremendous amount of credit. I think we have to not be cynical um, and we have to take it on his face value. He did something of great significance. And as he has done in the past, he was willing to pay a price. We've seen this when it comes to wars in Gaza. There is something very responsible about Netanyahu. And at this moment, he saw the potential of a historic change. And while technically he didn't give up territory, he did give up a claim to annexation or to extending Israel's rule to Judea and Samaria. He gave up on his core base at a difficult political time. So um, I would say that, yes, Netanyahu is firmly in the peace camp, firmly committed to doing so, but he's committed to doing so, it seems, in terms that he feels are responsible for Israel's well-being. 
And in this case, it was a win-win. He doesn't want peace to be a, uh, a zero-sum game where the zero side of it is on Israel's side. What's your take? Look, I, I no longer give Netanyahu the benefit of any doubt. Really? Yeah. And 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 that's that was not my position in the past. I had an enormous amount of respect for him. I have voted for him in the past. I wouldn't dream of voting for him again. But uh, I certainly didn't demonize Netanyahu. Today, I fear that every step he takes is calculated to, to somehow mitigate his, his, legal, his legal predicament. But, but having said that, I have to admit that I am struggling with the following question. And that is, did he use the threat of annexation as a kind of brinksmanship to, to extract this historic concession uh, from, uh, from the Emirates? Now, I don't think so. I think that he quite honestly blundered into this. I think he really did intend to annex. But I do have that gnawing doubt in my mind. Did he really intend to use this as a threat? And if so, how should that change the way we think about peacemaking? To say that he was that calculating, that that almost is. I wouldn't go for that. I don't think it was that. I think... For whatever reason, he really wanted to annex. And I think it had to do more with his inner Israeli politics and his competition or rivalry with Bennett. For now, Netanyahu used to say that I have to lead Israel from the center. He is now believes that the best place to lead Israel from his perspective is from the right. And I think annexation gave him, especially when it was supported by Trump, so I don't think he put it for that reason. I think Kushner gets a lot of credit here. I think maybe part of us, we need to be a little less cynical. Um, the fact that we could be cynical some of the time, I think it's a mistake to be cynical all the time because then I don't think we allow people to emerge and to not even to change. We have to remember that Netanyahu consistently has been willing to make serious concessions when he thinks, um, concessions to his own political base, when he thinks it's for Israel's well-being. And I think in this case, we have to give him just the credit. This is a very serious move. Now, we have to analyze what this move is. But I would here, as distinct from U.S., and even though our personal politics are irrelevant here, I think we owe him a serious statement of gratitude and recognition of his larger commitment to the well-being of Israel, regardless of the political consequences that he will face as a result. I'm very much in the spirit of one of the protest signs that a young woman brought to the demonstration this past Saturday night, which said, uh, Toda, Toda al Dubai, Vialabai. <laughs> what is that? Thank you. Thank you for Dubai. And now it's time to go. <laughs> and now it's time bye bye. I think that's a separate conversation, and uh, we should have that conversation. But I think we owe him. And I think Israel, and I think we owe a serious look at what's here, separate from our assessment of his role as prime minister. I think he's earned it. I think he's earned our respect at this moment. And I, I for one, want to give it to him. And maybe that's part of the bipartisanship in the world that I want to live in. I don't want to always have to look at somebody who I might politically disagree with 
and say, excuse me, by definition, since you're not in my political camp, everything that you do has to always be put through that filter of my partisan loyalties. I don't respect that conversation. I don't respect that dichotomous way of looking at the world. I think it flattens our universe. It flattens our values. It flattens our understanding. And I think it also flattens our ability to respect people who are different from us. Um, Netanyahu is different from me. Leave aside his political discussion. Leave aside a lot of other issues. Right now, bipartisanship requires thank you. Well, the response within the Israeli public uh, confirms the vision that you have for Israeli society. I think that we actually are that. Uh, something like 80% of Israelis say that uh, they prefer normalization within our country to annexation, uh, right. which means that the annexationists really are a, I won't say an insignificant minority, but very much a minority. And what this peace agreement has done is restore some perspective to how we see Israeli society. We are not divided down the line 50-50. We really, as a society, are committed in principle to peace. We prefer peace to territory. And this agreement, I think, once again, uh, confirms that. I think it's even more, I would want to add another layer beyond the layer of peace. As I was hearing you talk, for so many years in Israeli society, the primary discourse was us versus them. Through the Iranian filter, the, the, the issue of Iran, it was the world around us. There's Iran, there's BDS, there's enemies. And the strength of the political right is to see an us-them universe. And come, let's circle the wagons. Let's protect ourselves. We're, we are this small minority. In a... Here, I think what this treaty is about, I don't know if it's as much an embracing of peace, because we already had, we, did, we weren't at war with Dubai. But I think what it is, is it's embracing the possibility, which comes with a peace vision, in which we could be part of the world. We're, we're not alone. It's not everybody against us. There are people, the, the excitement of, of being able to look in our neighborhood and to say, yes, we have friends. That horizon is not a horizon that ever served the right wing well. And Netanyahu put that back. Netanyahu is saying to us, okay, we have our enemies. But ladies and gentlemen, there's a world out there who want to be our friends. Well, that why is an interesting reason, but we're not alone. Now, that, that is a very important ideological or even psychological repositioning uh, of Israeli society. Well, you know, we tend to forget that one of the core promises of Zionism uh, was not only to return us to the land of Israel, but to return us to the international community, right. to the family of nations. This was essential to the vision of the founders. And uh, I remember when uh, Yitzhak Rabin became prime minister in 1992, the inaugural speech that he gave in the Knesset was uh, a, a biblical disputation with uh, Bil'am the prophet. Bil'am the prophet who, who prophesied that uh, the Jewish people will be a, a nation that shall dwell alone and not be reckoned among the other nations. And Rabin takes on Bil'am. And he said, that is actually not a blessing, but a curse. And we 
we are meant to be part of the community of nations. And uh, that speech has haunted me ever since. And this moment is, is in some ways a belated confirmation of Rabin's commitment and right. intuition. So, and Netanyahu yes. is the one who gave us that. Yes. And that same Netanyahu, who has been speaking over again about us versus them, turns on a dime and he expands the horizon of Zionism again. That's a very, very big moment. Um, I think it'll also have a lot of impact on Israel's relationship with the world and on Israel's relationship with, with American Jewry. I don't think in Israel, which has no hope, no vision, no desire to be in dialogue with the world, is one that either the Western world or for that matter, many Jews in North America are excited to, to be a part of. Why, jo why join the team that's in the ghetto when you're not in the ghetto? Like, what is it? So here, this, okay, I know there's still, there's still occupation. I'm not saying it's going to make it go away. But here, we're, it's, it's a different conversation again. It's not that we're the powerful, we're the victorious. Yes, we care about the world. And by the way, when you do this, you're also beholden to them. The world, now if the Emirates sign a deal with us and Bahrain and, and others, now before we engage in policies, there are significant other. So being part of the world has, is, is going to have really interesting impact on the future of Israeli society and I think on the relationship with Israel, I hope at least. If we look at it from that perspective, uh, we can see that there really has been a struggle uh, in Israeli society uh, between those forces that are committed to the Zionist vision of uh, reintegrating the Jewish people into the international community and those who conceive of the Jewish state as a kind of a super ghetto, the ultimate right. ghetto. And uh, this has been a major setback for those forces. Huge. And part of the support for annexation, which was never that large, but I think at least beforehand, now we have 80-20 prefer this over annexation. I think the annexation figures pro-con were 40% pro more or less, something like that. Part of the argument for annexation was, well, the world always hates us. They will hate us regardless of what we do. So we might as well do whatever it is that we think is in our interest. And now all of a sudden we hit annexation at its core because you don't engage in a foreign policy which disconnects you from the world. And that's that's maybe what the 80% are saying, I'd much rather be part of the world than saying I am a nation that lives apart and I have to do whatever I want to do and a plague on their houses, they're anti-Semites before, they're anti-Semites tomorrow. And you know, Daniil, this peace agreement feels qualitatively different from the others. The others had this sense of formalism, uh, almost a grudging quality. And if yeah. you look at the cold peace that devolved, uh, there was something so deeply dissatisfying that in a way uh, it, it, confor it confirmed the mindset of, uh, of those who say the whole world is against us and the peace process is a fraud. There's something so refreshing about the way the Emirates have embraced this and they're excited. You know, my Twitter feed on, on uh, Friday was full of messages from people in the Gulf states, Shabbat Shalom in Hebrew, Shalom Aleichem, <laughs> from people I don't know, you know, with Israeli flags and Emirate flags. We can't wait to come to Tel Aviv. We can't wait for you to come experience our hospitality here. It made me want to get on a plane and, and go to Dubai. You know, it was like, in many ways, that was 
for a very short while, that's what Oslo brought too. Because the sense was that the Palestinians are the group in the Middle East who are closest to Israelis. Their level of education, religious fanat, everything. These are our partners. It turned out to be much more problematic. And maybe in the Emirates, we found a friend even, and we could even dare think in these terms. Let me ask you a, a less optimistic question. And that is, is making peace in the absence of resolving the Palestinian problem good or bad for Israel in the long term? Are we reinforcing the illusion that, that we can circumvent the Palestinian problem and do business with the Arab world? It's a great question. I would say at the end of the day, my gut instinct is that this is going to be good in the long run. And the reason why it's going to be good is that the more we don't see ourselves as in, in the largest Jewish ghetto in, in history, the more we see ourselves as of having a possibility of having friends, that hope, I believe, will be contagious. And it will raise expectations towards Palestinians. I think Israelis today have not moved forward on the Palestinian peace process because they deeply do not believe that the Palestinians want peace. Now, we might be wrong. Now, we might have bought propaganda, all of the above. That's possible. But I think that's where Israelis are. They don't trust. That's what, that's what the withdrawal from Gaza did. We don't trust you. We don't trust that you really want to live with us. Now, uh, so I don't see any downside because I don't see the, the peace process going anywhere with the Palestinians. Maybe that's what Netanyahu understood. I have to confess to you that, that I don't believe that the Palestinian national movement in any of its factions is ready to accept the existence of a Jewish majority state in any borders. And so I, like most Israelis, I have long given up any hope of a bilateral Palestinian-Israeli uh, peace agreement. But what this agreement reawakens in me is the hope of a regional solution, so sure. where we can bring in Arab states as our partners in, in overseeing the creation of a Palestinian state that will live in peace with Israel. Now, that's by no means going to be a simple, a simple process. But if we really have allies in the Arab world, that I think we're going to be able to convince large numbers of Israelis to take a chance on a two-state solution. It's really interesting. You know, the, one of the statements that I always hated was this notion of peace for peace. I always found it simplistic, naive. At the end of the day, if you're committed to peace... You also have to ask yourself, does peace trump the sanctity of the land? Does treat all the, What are you willing to give up for it? But I have to tell you, this moment, I don't know where I am because I see myself beginning to change. All of a sudden, I understand this notion of peace for peace differently. That part of what I want to have with Palestinians is I want to have peace for peace. Now, maybe, I want to, maybe I'm going to give up territory. But the notion that there's peace for territory, deep down, do you want peace for peace? Then I'll talk to you. 
I want peace for, now all of a sudden I want peace for peace. Now I still am ready for territorial compromise. I'll give up most of the Judea, most of Judea and Samaria. But I think peace for peace has something really important. And, and here too, you know, again, I, I, I'm almost pinching myself. Netanyahu, I'm, I'm, I, he's moved me. Something has changed. And I think he's moving Israeli society. And I think it's not by accident that in the, in the demonstrations, Every week it's been going up by two to 5,000 people. And last week it was at 15,000. And they were saying it's going to go to 20. This week it was under five. There's something, something very important happened. And I think at the end of the day, Israeli society is reconnecting to something. And I think maybe our demand of Palestinians will be not as you said, Let's have this regional coercion to take these little children and to force them to do what they don't want to do. I think maybe that's, a, that's the dead end. And I'd love to maybe in a future podcast talk more deeply about the two-state solution. Um, what does it really mean? But this idea, you know what? I want peace for peace. And then let's talk about what other considerations. And this is the major transformation of this moment. We're going to take a short break and... We'll be back with Ilana Steinhing. Hi, I'm Claire Suprin. And if you're listening to Identity Crisis, you're probably curious about the major ideas and debates of the day affecting Jews in America. So I have great news for you. I'm the co-editor with Yehuda Kurtzer of The New Jewish Canon, a book that's out this summer. You can find out more about it at newjewishcanon.com. In this book, we've gathered all Jewish ideas that were expressed between 1980 and 2015. Well, maybe not quite everything, but it contains major texts and debates that were vitally important to the American Jewish community, along with a series of reflective essays by today's thinkers that explain the debates and their importance. Read about it and how to buy it at newjewishcanon.com. Alana, good to be with you. Great to be here. Good to see you. So what sources from our tradition have you brought that can help us understand more deeply the complexities of making peace? I have to say, I'm, I, I love listening to the two of you because it's in real time, the optimism, the expansiveness, the feeling of the domino effect that this could cause is amazing. And I feel a little guilty because I'm going to pull us back <laughs> to something else. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Peace, beautiful. We care about peace. I mean, we literally say hello and goodbye to people with the word shalom in Jewish tradition. It's in every silent Amidah. It's in every Kaddish that we say for our loved ones. And it's our prophetic vision. It's our messianic vision. We're gonna, we're gonna, everyone's gonna beat their weapons into plowshares and the wolf and the lamb are gonna lie together. And it's just, it's, it's gorgeous. But let's go to the word normalization for a minute. I actually think there's a diversity to the word shalom, to the idea of peace in Jewish tradition. And yes, there's the messianic version. There's the prophetic utopian version of the wolf and the lamb are going to lie together. But you said it yourselves. It's possible that actually this version is actually circumventing our wolf and lamb problems, our real deep conflicts and is actually doing something else. So for this conversation about normalization of ties between Israel and the UAE, I want to consider a rabbinic phrase about peace called mipnei darkei shalom, for the sake of the ways of peace. And this term is used in the rabbinic body of Mishnah as a whole for 12 different cases. What's interesting about it is that it is 
not the peace of the prophets. It doesn't require a messianic meeting of the minds. It doesn't require people to text you, tweet at you Shabbat Shalom in any language. It doesn't require a sharing of expansive set of values, an overarching worldview. Actually, the ways of peace, according to the rabbis, it's about creating a social order that's going to meet people's interests and avoid conflict. And, and let's look at an example just to give you a sense of how even, even small and prosaic this kind of peace or normalization can be. It's a Mishnah in the Tractate of Gittin that's describing a bunch of different farmers and field owners. They live around the same channel of water. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to argue about who's going to get access to the water first. And so the Mishnah says something very simple. A well of one of these field owners that's nearest to the stream gets filled first for the sake of the ways of peace. In other words, you have a field, Daniel. I have a field. Yossi has a field. And I have a well that's near my field that gathers the water. Which of us gets to go first? Well, we certainly don't want Yossi bullying the two of us, Daniel, and deciding that his well goes first. And we don't want me and Daniel, you know, uh, uh, ganging up against Yossi. So what do we do? We establish some sort of social order. It's a very simple rule. The ways of peace, it, it, it's not a meeting of the minds. It's not a, a grand vision. Now, can it promote social solidarity? Sure. But mostly, it's basically trying to just create a social order. Functional. Make sure, functional, exactly. Make sure people get what they need. Could you be cynical and say, oh, it's about interest? Well, interest, what do you mean? That's functional. You want people to get what they need and feel like they're served in society. So when you look at the Mibnei Ke Shalom cases in rabbinic literature, what you find is, I'll say it even, even deeper, what you find is that 11 out of 12 of the cases are cases of financial interest that you're making sure that people get what they need financially. So I just want to start by putting that on the table, not because the dominoes won't necessarily fall. And certainly the two of you have a, have a very different view and a much closer view of what this is. But from afar, that's what normalization looks like. You're making sure that everybody gets water from the well. Really reflects a, an essential element of this peace agreement, uh, which is really a peace about business. Uh, there are very strong business interests that are motivating certainly the Emirates, uh, who have been doing undercover business with Israeli companies now for years. And uh, as soon as this peace agreement was announced, suddenly there were all of these uh, business negotiations that uh, suddenly emerged. Right. And so this is what you're what you're giving us is a very useful framework for understanding peace in a less romantic way. And, uh, and, you know, at, Hart, at, at the Hartman Institute, we speak about the values of peace. We speak about a values-oriented conversation. And I think it's important to remember, as you've reminded us, that self-interest is a value as well. And it's very much of, of a Jewish value. Yes, it's self-interest and also recognizing the interests of others is also a value. You, you don't have to be best friends in order to recognize that. Now look, you could go behind or beneath or, or dig underneath the idea of Darkei Shalom and ask, well, 
what motivates you to care about other people's interests. So the truth is the way people read Mipnei Darkei Shalom can go in two very different directions. There are those who read it as, well, this is a great way to make sure people aren't anti-Semitic. So whatever the equivalent of that is for the UAE, that they want people to look at them a certain way, and the Jews, we want people to look at us a certain way, and therefore we need to make sure that we don't, we don't raise the ire of other people. That's the way some people look at it. And there are other people who look at it, namely Maimonides, the Rambam, no small fish, right? Who says, well, this is actually about emulating God because God wants peace for all of God's creatures and therefore so should we. In other words, everybody's interests matter to God, so everybody's interests should matter to us. Now, could you find people, I mean, listen to the way you guys were talking about this normalization agreement. It was beautiful. It was Maimonidean, actually. The way you described this, what does it mean to be part of the world? You care about other people. Other people care about you. That's still not utopian, but it is something. I want to argue with you for a moment. Please. I agree. Your reading of Darkei Shalom in the Mishnah is, I think you're absolutely correct. It is the ways of peace. It's for the sake of the ways of peace. And the ways of peace are societal coexistence. Now, inside a society where you already have ties, we're neighbors, we're living next to each other, we're pushed, there, there's something, there's a given. Yes. And, then, and in that given, we know that in order to function, we need to come up with functional rules for coexistence. So, listen, are we going to fight over, the, over, this, right. over right. this water? Or are we going to come up sometimes with even an arbitrary solution? Because even an arbitrary solution is better than everybody fighting about it. But part of what we've realized in the Middle East, and I think in international relationships in general, is that there isn't a self-evident desire to coexist. My interests aren't necessarily to coexist with you very often. My interests are to build the biggest walls and the biggest separation. Yes. And I, one of the reasons why, and this is not a theoretical thing, I think one of the problems with peace discourse in Israel over the last 10, 15 years, post-Oslo, is that it's lost all of its utopian aspirations. Of course there's self-interest, and there always will be self-interest, but you need something. It's when you have neighbors, neighbors at the, it's, I could turn to us, you wanna fight about it? Because I'm in the same community. To, to reach out to someone outside of your community, if we are too functional, sometimes the status quo serves the functionality the best. Totally agreed, and you know as well as I know that there's also between Jews and non-Jews, right? There, and, and of course, we're not going to find a diplomatic version of in the rabbis. Okay, that's not what we're going to find. But there is a proto-version. I want to read it to you, okay? Go for it. One of the interests of peace examples, more than one, there are three at least of the 12. That's, that's a quarter. That's a bunch. That's 25%, okay? Three out of the 12 are about Jews and non-Jews. So here's one example. We don't prevent, and remember, the rabbinic period, Jews are living by themselves. Gentiles are living by themselves. They're not in the kinds of relationships that we have now in, I'm going to say, in American Jewish life, okay? We do not prevent poor Gentiles from collecting produce in our fields along with poor Jews. Why? In the interest of peace. Now, this is very strange. What do you mean? What's the big deal? People walk into your field. One second. Based on biblical law, Jews who are indigent 
they can take produce for free from Jewish fields. Now, there are specific parameters, what they're allowed to take, what they're not allowed to take, fine. But it's very clear that the allowance is, it's an intra-Jewish ethic. You're taking care of your own. Jews can walk into Jewish fields and pick up what they need if they don't have what to eat. But in this passage, what do we find out? That for the ways of peace, any poor, Jewish or not, can come collect in the field. Now, what's interesting about this is twofold. Number one, exactly what you pointed out, Danielle. This is not a situation where they have social solidarity already. They have to live in community. They have to be together. And as a result, yeah, of course, we're going to figure out some social order. This is actually, this would be functionally an outsider coming in and availing themselves of what really is an internal prioritization of your own community. Now, again, you could read this as we want to make sure that people look favorably around, uh, 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 you know, at Jews, or you could look at this as we want to make sure we're not discriminating. You could look at this as we care about everybody. But there's something here that's specifically transcending the boundaries of something where you already expect that you need to do this work. And then there's a second piece here, which is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something very strong. This violates biblical law. Because think about it. If the people who are not supposed to be coming to collect namely people outside of the Jewish community come in to collect, it means it's, there's less for the Jewish poor who would have come. That's what it means, meaning there isn't an infinite amount. That's sounding pretty utopian to me, Lada. Uh, well, so that, what, that's what I think is kind of fascinating. It's not that it's, let's not put it as a binary. Let's not put it's it- It's not either or, correct. It's not either or, but there is a spectrum and, and I want to note that normalization itself- Requires both. That is a value. It's valuable. It's valuable even before you get to anything else. And that's what I think this moment is so fascinating, especially because as an American, we talk about peace in these utopian terms. But to see it, it's something else, or at least something, a different step in that process. Lana, thank you. Uh, for all of us, uh, this has been a year of unexpected hardship and tragedy. Now, though, in that same unexpected way, Israel has achieved its third peace agreement with an Arab country. This is a rare moment of the vindication of hope, and it's been a joy to savor it with you both. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Thank you all for listening to our show. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Svi Kalman and edited by Daniel Zena. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music provided by So Called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next time, and thank you for listening.